0: You're listening to The Gulf Stream, where we talk to fascinating guests that want to make the Gulf of Mexico, and moreover, the world, a more sustainable and more beautiful place. Don't worry about getting bogged down in scientific jargon or academic lecturing. On The Gulf Stream, we break down complex ideas into simple, yet intriguing subjects that will help you be more informed and perhaps inspire you to create a better environment for all of us. After all, it takes people like you to make a difference in some of the toughest issues facing the earth today. Welcome to The Gulf Stream.
1: This is Greg Stuns, Interim Senior Executive Director at the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. On this episode of The Gulf Stream, I caught up with Pat Murray, the National President of the Coastal Conservation Association. In this episode, we talk about Pat's beginnings as a fishing guide, the early days of the CCA, how anglers can make a difference in sport fish conservation, Pat's involvement here at HRI, and of course, fishing. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, Pat, welcome to the Gulfstream podcast. We are thrilled to have you here at the Heart Research Institute. So Pat, of course, you know, you've literally dedicated your career and lifelong passion to fishing and conservation of our marine resources. And I was just hoping to talk to you a little bit more about that today and how you arrived from those initial beginnings and all these great partnerships we forged with you all and many others and talk about just where we are today in terms of marine sport fish conservation. And before we got too far into this, I I just wanted our listeners and viewers to know, I'm gonna do a formal introduction of you, Pat. Um, uh, Pat, of course, is very modest guy and humble, so he wouldn't say all this stuff. So I want to make sure we we really cover that. Of course, Pat is the national president of the Coastal Conservation Association. Um, he didn't start there, obviously. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But Pat is really a leader in marine conservation. Um, he, especially in the world of, of recreational fisheries. Um, not only that, you know, he's a world class fisherman himself, a former fishing guide, and literally wrote the book on. Um, to inshore fish and so you know we're talking to the best when it comes to that the best when it comes to steward of our resources and conservationists but also pat you know you're engaged at the highest levels dealing with some of the most contentious and controversial issues in fisheries management you and the cca are not afraid at all to get into those and and look after what is important for recreational fishing and you're influential player. You're on some keyboards that influence um, recreational fishing and, and conservation. And in short, Pat, we are just so fortunate and thrilled to have you here today on our podcast and really talk about where we've been and, and where we're going. And so we appreciate you taking the time. But Pat, I was hoping maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how did you end up as president of CCA? Where did well, you get started?
2: Well, I'm humbled by that introduction. That's a great introduction. <clears throat> I may need a copy of that introduction <laughs> because I, I really like that introduction. It makes me sound far more lofty than I am. Um, so it's it's really my honor, my pleasure to be here. Um, and you and I have a lot of conversations about a lot of things um, through our inner workings together, um, through our times fishing together. Um, and And it's interesting that a lot of times it all culminates in places like HRI, you know, yeah. in places where science and policy and, and really smart people all come together to try to make a difference. And yeah. so I guess what brought me, sort of on our, our broader level, brought me into conservation was what probably is at the heart of fishing, which is just a passion for the resource. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that came to me early um, from fishing. So yeah. my earliest memories are being in Port Aransas and fishing with my dad. And seeing that that way the coast was and how fishing was, you know, it's funny. So you, you get into fishing, you're like, you know, a little kid. I mean, some of my mm-hmm. earliest memories are fishing. And it's fascinating that from loving fishing, that quickly turns into wanting to ensure that the fishing is, is still going to be there tomorrow. Yeah. And and so to me, for people that treat fishing like an art. Um, that treat fishing like a passion. The leaped conservation is really more of a step. It's not really a leap because what else would you want to do but first protect it and make sure that it's going to be there and then enhance it. Yeah. And that's sort of at the root of probably me and my vision and definitely of CCAs um, and definitely HRIs. And so um, I was a fishing guide. Shortly out of college, um, I started doing it when I was. uh, was, I I was fortunate to have some mentors that were guides and were much more established than me, and they would give me some overflow trips. And when you're a college kid and getting overflow trips, um, you know, and you get paid in hundred dollar bills, you're like, you can make that go a long way. You can get a lot of trouble (laughs) too, but um, but you got to get up for your next trip or your next class, so. Um, I at least had that governor in place. But um, but it, it really lured me in. And I was truly um, seduced by that whole lifestyle And because I just grew up thinking fishing guides were the coolest yeah. thing ever. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting, too, is fishing guides and marine biologists. Yeah. And, I mean, as a kid and staying literally at the Channel View condominiums in Port Aransas and looking over at the University of Texas Marine Science Institute, and, um, which I know is a wonderful partner, Um, organization and uh, in university is I I just saw this lifestyle and it was really luring and so from guiding I ended up strangely working for Coastal Conservation Association uh, which maybe isn't that strange because that was that leap to trying to make a difference for the resource yeah And there was no one but GCCA who I
1: saw doing it that way. And I I don't think there really was, Pat. I mean, you know, one, I mean, before you went to CCA, I mean, you certainly made a name for yourself as a guide. (laughs) You weren't just any guide. You were the guide, you know, one of the most well-known guides in Galveston. You made your name on the tournament circuit. You really set, set the stage for you writing the books and all the great work that you do in the writing realm and photography realm that, you know, not only did you just write about that stuff and. You know, kind of take pictures of that; those kind of things. You did it. You lived it, and then so I guess you just saw the need to move to the next level of conservation.
2: Yeah, it's it, it. Well, it just seems so logical because again, that wanting to make a difference in the resource becomes so resonant. You know, the more you you see and experience in utilizing the resource, and you know that's the essence of stewardship in hunting and fishing and in everything. And, um, and CCA, at least being at that time, you know, a Texas fisherman and particularly growing up in Houston, Texas, that Gulf Coast Conservation Association name was just right there. And, and I, and I had, you know, really my period of sort of being cognizant of what was going on with the resource was after the redfish wars, even though I was around then I was alive, I was fishing even then. Um, but it was, it was this reputation of being able to make a difference And and that's really um, that's a hard thing to get your head around, particularly as a young kid. It's like so someone's going to manage this resource and make it better or protect it from some force that might take it away from you.
1: Yeah. You know, well, and I I was hoping maybe we could talk a little bit more about that, because I don't know that 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 our listeners and viewers really understand, you know, the the history of the Redfish Wars. It, It seems to me, you know, just teaching classes in the natural resource conservation space and whether it's fishing or hunting or outdoor recreation, it's those folks that are doing the recreation that really tend to look after the resource because it's it's their passion. They understand my passion goes away if I don't. So it's kind of ironic. You think of something like a duck hunter who, you know, shoots animals and really, you know, loves the animals so much to preserve that way of life. It's no different with the the fishermen. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what really, you know, gives all of us that like conservation, our roots and that thing. And, and I don't think that is more typical or really summarized in the way we we arrived at the CCA and those historical events that really set the stage for uh, the premier organization looking after our, our marine resources. And I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about that founding and the Redfish Wars and how all that yeah. set the stage for where we are today with the CCA.
2: No, you framed that perfectly because it was those those anglers, um, there's, a, there's a great story of fabled 14 anglers who got together in 1976, technically, um, but got together and and saw what was going on with gill netting um, in, in all parts of the coast, the middle coast in particular, middle yeah. Texas coast. Um, but keep in mind, too, this was going on in in Louisiana and other places, too, and yeah. they saw the decimation of Red Drum and Spectre Trout. And... They wanted to make a difference, and they they and it was really incredible because these fourteen anglers had this big vision, and they said, you know, if we can get the 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 support among the managers, if we can get the members, if we can get the dollars, we can actually make this happen. And they created a model um, of of fundraising and membership and advocacy, and through those three big hammers, they were able to all of a sudden make a difference. And before long you got a banning of single strand monofilament gill nets, um, in Texas waters by 1981. So these, these folks were getting together, you know, in the late seventies and they made that happen. Yeah. And, and I think it's that reminder of probably the power of, of passion, but it's sort of what you said when you, when you were talking about the, the essence of stewardship is that, you know, and maybe not in the same time frames and maybe not in the same ways but it's happened with with ducks and with elk and with everything yeah is that these these folks these men and women that care about these resources are the mm-hmm. ones that are really willing to put their hearts and their wallets and their influence into it yeah. and and maybe that gets back into the question of why why are you interested in CCA maybe why would you want to work for CCA why do you want to be a member of CCA and um and and it's it's things like that that make you want to yeah um you know, I always tell people, it doesn't matter if you join CCA or you join Ducks Unlimited or you join, you know, Coastal Bend Bay's foundation, whatever you would get involved with, mm-hmm. just get involved with something.
1: Yeah. Because yeah. all
2: of these things matter.
1: Well, in these groups and of course, CCA leading the way, I mean, in reality, if if you're fishing or you appreciate a healthy oyster reef or the seagrass meadows or 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 whatever habitat. And we're going to talk about a lot of your habitat work coming up here in a minute, Pat. But you really need to be thinking the CCA because if it wasn't for some of those initial leaders, we may not be have the robust fisheries oh, that we have today. And that goes idea. for Texas State fisheries. And now, of course, y'all have expanded nationwide or across the Gulf Coast. And uh, and that includes offshore fisheries. So yeah, it, it just really. I think blossomed into a, a a program that we all should be proud of. And I want to make sure we're getting the word out there that, that it's groups like that that you're talking about, obviously the CCA and many others that lead to these healthy ecosystems we have today so we can enjoy Absolutely. outdoors.
2: Yeah, it's yeah. and it's that thing that you always have to remember that fisheries, that healthy fish stocks can go away. Yeah. And they can get fished away or they can get managed away. Mm-hmm. And that's the funny thing is that we got to remember there's, there's, certain pushes in certain factions of of fisheries management and honestly all sorts of different management to push anglers and those stewards away. Oh yeah, and exclude them yeah. and yeah. and you as you know vice chairman of the Gulf Mexico Fishery Management Council you get to see
1: yeah. that. Yeah, and of course you and we we live this every day and and probably some of the listeners here don't realize there's there's groups out there that would love to do away with recreational fishing. Absolutely, And it's a constant battle and, and you guys are at the forefront. And what I like to say is, you know, we, we kind of know scientifically what we need to do to manage to have healthy populations, but it's really managing that access. That's so critical and it, that, that it you is. have access to the natural resources. And there's, there's groups that would maybe not like to see that. And, yeah. and you guys are in from the frontline battlefield to ensure that, that happens, and it's funny because I mean, it's
2: you know, the, there's always that that sort of mantra of you know, in, in the eyes of kids, you know, through a kid's experience, yeah. you can always see truth and and clarity. And you go to a little kid who's had their first fishing experience, and 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 the magical, sort of compelling part of that, and then and then ask them to imagine someone trying to take that away from them. They look at yeah. you like you were a Martian, yeah. like an aggressive Martian, yeah. actually, yeah, yeah. and yeah. um. And but I think we always got to remember that that we got to remember that these aren't just existential threats. They're out there. And it's only through stewards that we've gotten where we are in terms of these these resources being strong. And, you know, in in various states, um, the state management doesn't want recreational anglers on the federal level. There's certain factions don't want recreational anglers, uh, which doesn't make sense conservation wise, economically, socially in any way. But that doesn't matter. They're still there. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, yeah. and
2: and I think that's the thing. The ultimate safeguard against that is people getting involved and putting yeah. in time, no matter what group they get involved with, but staying involved and remembering that part of, in this case, fishing, part of fishing and being a recreational angler is making sure you're part of the system that's managing those resources.
1: Exactly, exactly. That I mean, that is certainly a call to action. And I mean, I think you know those original fourteen guys, like you were talking about, recognize that you know there's real value to those fish versus you know maybe selling them, selling them at dockside mm-hmm. for a certain value that ends up in a fish market, but you know, if you looked at communities like Corpus Christi, where we are right here, or Port Aransas, or anywhere along the coast, you know, people come in for vacation, they're buying hotel rooms and restaurants. And, uh, you know, let's don't even talk about the cost of fishing tackle these days, you know, boats and everything else. And those are huge economic drivers to to the state and the economy nationwide. And so obviously, that's a whole other incentive uh, to keep that going. But, but, um, you know, having robust recreational fisheries is is key to all that. I mean, if there's not anything to catch and you don't act, have access to go catch it, all those economic drivers kind of
2: absolutely fail.
1: And then everything else starts to fail around it because <clears throat> if if you don't really care about the
2: speckled trout and the redfish, and I'm just picking those species because you yeah. and I particularly care a lot about yeah. those two species, um, or, or 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 southern flounder or whatever it may be, then you probably also don't care about the seagrass, yeah. and you probably don't care about the oysters, and right. you don't care about that sedimentation problem over here or that inflows problem over there. And, and that's the magic of conservation is that once you start to care, there's a lot to care for. And there's an entire eco that, you know, you can't silo out. Well, I just care about trout. Well, good luck.
1: Well, exactly. Well, you're, you're hitting on it and you're jumping ahead. In fact, to what I wanted to talk about here, Pat, that I don't think many people realize that, yes, of course we care about redfish and these iconic species, but if you don't have those foundational habitats. They don't exist. They, you know, don't. they don't go, and so the, the oysteries, the marshes, you know, and so, and I, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about how CCA's role. I, I would guess that maybe most folks don't realize they see CCA as the Redfish organization mm-hmm. because it started with the Redfish stickers on everyone's car, but they don't realize everything you've got going on with building conservation trust and all the other great work that y'all do and partnerships that you have. That it's it's a multifaceted. Operation. So maybe Pat, tell us a little bit about. It. So you went from the 14 guys; they solved an immediate problem yeah. of really decimation of, of fisheries and state waters to maybe where we are today with under your leadership, especially. But you have the Building Conservation Trust as your sister organization. Mm-hmm. What What does all that look like to someone that maybe doesn't? Yes, doesn't that's know a season. great
2: question because it's a it's because it's a, a complex question with a complex answer. So I'll sort of, I'll try to walk through it. It's well, and it's all anchored in great leaders. Um, mm-hmm. and what's funny is we've been blessed with them from the start. You know, yeah. you talk about those original 14 that were truly visionaries and then that group started to grow and it started to bring in all different types of people with different skill sets, And, and then once they started to achieve some, some goals, as you alluded to, mm-hmm. it started to spread. And so it spread all through the, the Gulf, the South Atlantic, um, West coast,
1: um, yeah. it, it, everywhere. Even and, forming a, a need for a name change, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we
2: went from Gulf Coast Conservation Association. And at one point, it was really weird. We were, you know, Atlantic Coast Conservation, so they had all these different, and it was very confusing. Yeah. And so finally, it was just like, let's just wipe it down to CCA. Yeah. And and it's CCA, and then each state, but then also the national yeah. branch of it, and and then I guess it's like any good social enterprise, the the mission and the focus as strong as the mission is the focus and the vision have to keep changing and evolving. Yeah. And so, you know, what was founded in advocacy, you know, quickly found the need for science Yeah. and say, okay, we want to make a difference, but we got to have the science behind it. And then as that moves along, then you start to say, okay, you're getting decent management because you got to have that first. And then, and of course that's anchored in science and policy and all these things, but then you want to have good habitat. And, and that's sort of evolutionarily in terms of the big evolution of conservation where we are, where habitats becoming more and more important. Oh yeah. As we all know, there's more anglers every day. That's a good thing. Um, Much to the chagrin of people who feel like they can't get on their fishing spots (laughs) or, or whatever. It's uh, I I love telling this story. Um, One of my mentors, uh, a guy, uh, David Wright, who's deceased, um, who always had an amazing way with telling stories. And one day I'm a young guide. Um, and all my spots are covered up and I am crying like a baby. I'm moaning because I got customers. I can't get them on everything. There's people all over every spot and I'm just whining to him. And I'll never forget. We must've, we must've met up at some point during the day. He took his crusty little finger and he shook it at me. And he said, you better hope these people are always here. Yeah. He said, because if they're not we're not. Yeah, and what was so interesting in the the way those words ring in my ears and sort of give me chills to this day, um, is that he, he, his his great quote continues to be right.
1: Yeah, because
2: as I've seen fisheries management changes, I better understood fisheries management. Uh, maybe it's even the management of a lot of things. Is that without people there who care, um, without people on the water, then it can all go away. Exactly. And again, it can get fished away, it can get managed away, but or both. And so it's having great leadership and people that understand that and are willing to dig in. And that's what I've seen through CCA. Yeah. And, and, and they come in in different ways. Some come in for habitat, some come in for conservation, some come in for the party, and that's okay yeah.
1: too, or the yeah. tournament.
2: Yeah. That's all yeah. good stuff. That's the the magic, I think, of that conservation stew that we see.
1: Well, and the magic. I mean, certainly you have the leadership and the visionaries. But, you know, what, what I really see CCA is, is really, you know, a, a, in the truest sense, a grassroots kind of organization Absolutely. that is coming up. You know, it's not this top-down thing of folks telling you that this is how it has to be. This is individual groups or individuals recognizing a problem. They can integrate into your system and, and really solve that problem. really. Yeah. Really change, change their passion or, or change their access to the fishery or whatever it might be, and I think that's really important that they, an individual member, has a direct link into you know all the resources that CCA has. They literally can make a difference. Yeah, that, I, I really that's
2: probably yeah. one of the most important points you can make, which you just yeah. did right there. Is it? People forget they can make a difference because they can make yeah. a difference through an organization like CCA. But they can also make a difference because they're a constituent for a, for a legislator somewhere.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, and that exactly. matters. Well, well. Speaking of science, Pat, you know, and, and bringing it back to to why you're here and your role here at the Heart Research Institute, I, I definitely want to talk about that for a minute. But what grew out of CCA, y'all saw the need for habitat, and if you didn't have these foundational species in an ecosystem, you're not going to have the fisheries that everyone. It's yeah. kind of the end goal, and and y'all elevated that even to the next level by building this Building Conservation Trust mm-hmm. group. And I was I was hoping maybe you'd talk a little bit about the origins and the thoughts there and, and where are you at today with that group. I, I think most people wouldn't realize all the efforts that are going in to ensure habitats are literally created from where some don't exist, some are enhanced, and all the sorts of things you all do through this Building Conservation Trust arm.
2: Yeah, it's really cool. We, we created that. It's a, it's a support organization, CCA, Building Conservation Trust, Um, and we found a number of corporate partners who helped us really put it together. Um, folks like Shell, um, Mm -hmm. folks like Philip 66, BP, I I could go on and on others. Um, Mm -hmm. and then individuals, you know, we had, Mm -hmm. we had a core group of founders, people like Will Hart, um, who really saw the importance of this and saw the vision of this and that if you don't have healthy habitat, you're not going to have healthy resources. Yeah, And then what we found was there were so many different ways to make a difference, be it oyster work, um, offshore or near shore reefing, marsh restoration. And then as this vision sort of grew, um, we found we could do work on all three coasts. Yeah. Um, and and the, the work manifests differently in every area. And so you had to have something... That could provide funding for the grassroots back to the grassroots yeah. point is that that's been the, the real the key to cca's success is having this intricate grassroots network that like you said goes down to the local chapter level i mean that, yeah. that everyone is a piece of this puzzle and the building conservation trust is able to then leverage those grassroots to make sure that it's funding projects that matter and that they're getting executed correctly Mm-hmm. And that we're doing the science behind them. Yeah. And HRI and the Sportfish Center have been so important for doing that work. You know, you talked yeah. about, um, you made an important nuance there clear in that the difference between enhancing habitat, which is important, but then also mm-hmm. just dead up creating it. Yeah. Um, where we've worked with some of your team through the years to go in and do baseline studies, um, do offshore, near shore, offshore reefing. And then come in and see not only what aggregation happens, but then what production happens.
1: Yeah, exactly. And yeah,
2: that's been transformative on the federal level, even the yeah. way the managers look at it.
1: And, of course, coming from a research institute here, that's really important to us because we think our natural resource management should be guided in wise science and, mm-hmm. and backed by the science. Not, not only does that help, and it helps, you know, in a world of limited resources, you can maximize your restoration efforts, But also, it also helps, uh, a legislator might say, well, you just acquired this much money to do this. Is it really working? Of course, the science comes in to help help justify that. But what I found interesting on building conservation trusts and as a sort of perfect example of of this grassroots is, of course, y'all are operating from well up into the northeast all the way out into California. Of course, they're out the Gulf, but a local group or organization realizes that Hey, there, there isn't as many oysters as there used to be in the Northeast. Like, hello, what can we do to do that? And you guys then step in, you've got the resources, you got the backing to really make a difference and put habitat where it didn't exist before. maybe it existed and just was long gone or whatever. And so I think that that's, that's really important. And of course, then everything kind of grows out of
2: that. So uh, I agree. It's, and, and, and it's hard to say anything's the future. What's the future. Um, I always tell people, if you talk to me long enough, I'm going to tell you like 10 things of the future, yeah. but yeah. probably because they are. Um, but the future is habitat, because getting mm-hmm. back to what we mentioned earlier about more people getting to the water. Um, yeah. We got to make sure that habitat is expanding. So our founder, Walter Fondren, um, I have so many great Walter Fondrenisms. Um, One of my favorites is he said fisheries move to the small end of the funnel. So it comes down to inches and days and and little things that you're tweaking, tweaking, tweaking and managing yeah. the fishery. And and then what I found was you take that image and he's correct. And then you introduce habitat and it moves the other direction. Yeah. Because it starts to expand all those things. Exactly. And yeah. so we've seen it with the red snapper fishery and mm-hmm. red snapper yeah. stocks is that you get enough habitat out there. And all of a sudden you got a lot of fish. Yeah. And so that's a great key lesson to remember
1: no matter what waters you're in. Yeah. Well, And that's exactly why we call them foundational species you know mm-hmm. you're a scientist and talking to a scientist you know they form the foundation of the ecosystem and what hap- you know if you don't have a good foundation like anything building a home or whatever you know you're not going to succeed and that's exactly why i think y'all are are right there not only on the advocacy side but you've also got this habitat conservation ensuring that you got a healthy resource and then this whole concept of making sure we have access to what what we've built there. Is, yeah, that's sort so of true. Things. And that's, what's
2: funny about it. That's why to me, what's so important about people getting involved is that the, the getting to understanding that doesn't take that long, you know, you get yeah. into fishing. And again, if you look at fishing as an art, as a craft, like you look at martial yeah. arts or culinary arts or anything like that, you get into it and you start to realize that you're part of that ego. Yeah. And that you have to have that foundational habitat and then you got to have good management on it. And then you got to have yeah. good science And you got to have all those woven together to make sure the resource is being managed correctly today so it's there tomorrow. And it's elementary, but you have to experience it to know it. And to me, that's where I get excited because that's available to virtually anyone. Yeah, exactly. And, And then they can go get involved on any level they want to. And all along the while, they're probably becoming a better angler. Yeah. Because the more yeah. you study it, the more you get it, and the more you actually get improved as an angler.
1: Well, Pat, I, I know you're an exceptional busy guy, and and many of our listeners may not realize, but you play a key leadership role here at the Institute, and we appreciate that commitment and time commitment for as little time you have to dedicate mm-hmm. to certain things. But, you know, we really believe here at the Institute in, in terms of what CCA does and your mission and how well it integrates with what we do. And I thought I'd just tell our viewers and listeners, you know, uh, Pat Murray's the guy that got me started here. So I don't <laughs> want this podcast to turn into about me, but I, I think it's important. It'll really set the stage. The CCA, Pat Murray, you, if you recall, you know, you're executive director at the time. You happened yeah. to be at the Corpus Chapter here. And, and we were having this big problem about or trout survive, catch, and release. And it was really controversial. And I as a young scientist. thought, oh, I, I can provide a solution to that and do some studies. And, of course, you know, so the CCA really got me started with the first grant, but it really started before that. And yeah. probably why I'm such a true believer, Pat, is that the CCA gave me, I was literally headed in a different professional direction. And I was looking at fishing magazine and I read about the CCA scholarship. And I said, you study this stuff. And <laughs> turns out I went to college station, got the scholarship. And next thing you know, you know, I'm doing fisheries research. And now because of you all's generosity, Um, I have students now on the same scholarship. So it's really, it's really come full circle. I mean, I couldn't be more proud of that. So then not only did you get me my, my uh, sort of professional start in the, in the field, you gave me my first real research grant, which was a big deal. And it just, you know, the way luck turns out in life, it was a really controversial, but heated topic. Mm -hmm. And there were some great findings. And of course, y'all ran with that and it just really blossomed from there. And, Ultimately led to you being in a key advisory role here at the Heart Research Institute, and I was hoping, Pat, maybe you could talk a little about that and yeah. that evolution and where we are today with Ed Hart's vision and where no, you see makes, that.
2: It's funny, it, it it the the HRI model, Ed's vision of you know being this incredible institute where this important nexus of policy and science meeting is mm-hmm. really the CCA vision too, in so many ways. Um, little yeah. different, because one's grassroots driven, the other one is science driven, but they mm-hmm. meet in the same place. Yeah, And yeah. so that connection is completely logical. And, and you can see why it intertwines so nicely. And, and, and maybe that, what you framed up there, um, is a great example if we had a, a policy issue of, it was pushing to limit the amount of trout over 25 inches, It's going to be 1 over 25, which as you allude to is controversial at the time. It's kind of funny to think about that yeah. because trout conservation has evolved since then where I don't think people would be as um, –
1: Argumentative. Right. I yeah. mean back then to let the listeners know it was like you keep a tree you catch a trout, that thing is dead. There's I, no way it's this regulations were useless. They <laughs> thought they would die. Exactly. And we almost no.
2: lost a couple of local chapters because they were like, you don't know no, I'm you know Yeah.
1: And it was really funny. Now um, it'd be the opposite. Oh now I mean, of course, you know. You, you got other other groups and stuff, you know, just living on catch and release, you know, and that kind of thing. It just, it's just assumed that's 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 what's it's, happening. It's and,
2: funny how we evolve as creatures. But but if it yeah. were not that so you and I get connected and and I'm the executive director of CCA Texas at the time and taking some heat over this because everyone believes these fish die. Yeah. And then you step up and we fund a study. And I remember early on in, in some of that study, and you I was talking to you all the time because, uh, and you were like, you know, Pat, these things live, they're, they're living. And you were doing all different dimensions and how you would track that. And I remember thinking, Oh, we're going to get out of this (laughs) trap because we knew we wanted to do that conservation measure. It was in place and people were doubting it, Yeah, you know? And, and that's really the manifestation of Ed Hart's vision. I mean, that vision was so brilliant because we couldn't have reached that public policy yeah. moment. We couldn't have convinced people were it not backed by that science. Yeah. And yeah. so to this day, that's where I was like, well, this is it. I mean, there's a lot of great institutes we work with um, throughout the country that are all valuable, but but there's nothing like HRI in terms of just perfectly hitting that nail on the head. Yeah. And, and the adaptive nature of it, the Great Red Snapper Count being an example of just all of these different things that we see where you need science to drive good policy. And so that gets back to talking about, you know, why, maybe, why did I, why do so many get involved with conservation from, from the passion of fishing? And it's, it's things like that, because it, you really understand that it's a dynamic resource. Um, It's, it's, it's fragile. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's adaptive, but it's fragile. Yeah. And and it and it is resilient, but it but it can get hurt. And so you start to think, well, you want to be driven by good science so you can make the right decisions and you want to have a process that will actually drive decisions. And and so at least for me personally, my partnership um, with HRI and then through CCA's partnership um, is just glaringly obvious and logical. Um, Of course, we would be yeah because yeah and then like you say what's been exciting is just all the different programs that have emerged from that exactly science well, of what conservation I was say. you know the science yeah. of conservation program um we've been really fortunate to have some work with some amazing folks um people like kesley banks yeah. um is a great example yeah. of that among yeah. others yeah um and uh and then and then within that too We've been able to bridge into the release sense program, yeah. which is educating people on the importance of catch and release, which is sort of where all this began. Exactly, with it's that really catch and
1: release study kind of come full circle. Yeah. Well, and even beyond that, Pat, I mean, well, certainly our institute prides itself of this HRI model, where we want our science to be implemented into management or policy. And, and, you know, the trout catch and release thing couldn't have been more appropriate where it's like, hey, we got a We got a problem here or, or an issue. Mm-hmm. We need the science. We want science to, to guide wide policy, wise policy. And so, you know, that I think that's what sort of really made that for a natural fit. And not only that, I mean, we're all conservationists. We love to fish, you know, and all that mm-hmm. it certainly didn't help out. But, you know, it's, it was it's a long way from, you know, us first meeting as assistant director here in Corpus, and those first initial studies to really where we are now today, Pat. But I wanted to just to, to to you know say thank you, but also really talk to our listeners about the CCA is so much more than. Of course, it has its grounds, roots, in recreational fishing. But y'all have done so much more. You look here at the institute; you're involved in oyster restoration and recovery of that fishery. We talked about all the habitat stuff. We talked about the legislative and policy that it goes way beyond. Hey, we want more redfish to go catch. Kind of.
2: You're, you're right, yeah. and maybe that's it. That it's it. What's founded in saying we we want to make sure there's good recreational fishing opportunities. If it's if it's cultivated and bred the right way, it grows into that. What you're talking yeah. about. And yeah. CCA Texas, among our state chapters, is one of the great examples of that. And and what's funny is what's been behind it is that it's been all of the many levels of leadership, yeah. and it's been the amazing folks mm-hmm. that put their time in at state board levels and local chapter board levels and even go to local meetings and whatever it may be that have helped drive that force along.
1: Yeah. Well, and that would certainly be a call to action for folks out there listening is join up, go to your banquet events, which are a ton of fun, which is, you know, one of Mm y'all's major, you know, fundraising and membership drive kind of things It's just huge events. And you really realize that, wow, I can make individually make a big difference in outdoor conservation. You can and particularly,
2: I mean, you know, like I say, CCA is in a lot of states and, and some, a lot of states are hard, um, are yeah. much harder than Texas. Yeah. Um, and so mm-hmm. we're kind of focused on some of the origins and so some of the Texas components of it. But, um, you know, if you if you're an angler in Texas, you you really have no excuse to not get really involved because there's, yeah. there's some states where it's much more challenging. You go to like our California chapter, um, they can't do reefing because the government won't let them. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Now, yeah. that's just. I just can't even get my head around it sometimes. Yeah. And so we're very fortunate we have the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department here in the way they are. Yeah. Um, you know, our Louisiana chapter has some of those same positive energies and, and positive relationships. Yeah. And again, it goes, it it, it undulates through all the different parts of the coast, but it's remembering that no matter where you are in that sort of timeline and evolution of conservation, that mm-hmm. the only way you can make a difference is by getting involved. Yeah it's yeah it's never gonna you're never gonna what is it there's a that great line you you can't think yourself into action but you can act yourself into thinking yeah
1: and and well, and, and so if you start
2: uh, acting you start getting yeah. the thinking
1: right yeah and that's you know that's that's in fact interestingly enough that's sort of a core way we think about science how scientific method occurs that kind of thing mm-hmm. you just move move on and and evolve and and so, you know, I, I think it's interesting, something that, that kind of just hit me, but I think we intuitively knew it, it here, at least in Texas, is that our groups are largely on the same page. And maybe that's what the magic was and why we've been so successful here. You've got the state agencies, mm-hmm. you've got conservation groups, you've got scientists, and we're all largely, I mean, of course, we don't see out on many things many times, sure, but I sure. mean, in general, we all are part of this larger team that are really working towards wise conservation of our resources. And, and, and we ultimately get there because, you know, we all team up and try to that break really down some of those obstacles. That, and that really
2: is it. And, and, and people valuing uh, science the same ways. And even though we, and I think the thing yeah. about not always agreeing is a really good point. Yeah. I, I find myself telling people that when they'll, they'll ask me about getting involved with a group, and and, I'll, and and it doesn't matter what it is. It, may, it yeah. might even be getting involved in going to a, a hearing from a commission hearing or a council hearing. And I always remind people, it you don't have to agree on everything, and and that if someone thinks they have to agree on everything to get involved with something, they are guaranteed to never get involved yeah. with anything.
1: Exactly. There's
2: no yeah. way they could ever even be a voter Yes. <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. there's not a single politician you could vote for that you agree with everything they say. Yeah. I mean,
1: um, they, they need to come listen to some of our scientific arguments. Right? Yeah. scientists We don't agree on anything. Agree In on anything. fact, the beauty of not agreeing and challenging each other's thoughts is what moves the ball and forward. That's exactly it. You and, know, and, 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 and people uh,
2: think that they go, well, I just don't agree with CCA on this issue, or I don't agree with the department on that yeah. issue, or I don't agree with the federal government on these issues. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, you know,
1: Get involved. And sometimes we have disagreements, and you know what? You're wrong. You're like, yeah. wait a minute! I should have been thinking about it at this angle because then all of a sudden, you know, you know that's led that's to, the best moment. You know, I,
2: I love uh, those moments. You, you kind of hate them at the time. I love those moments yeah. because when I can get compelled to change my opinion, it reminds me how much there is to still learn. Because because yeah. I get rigid in my thoughts. I mean, I've been I've been working with cca for 25 years and 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 before that was a fishing guide so i was real you know i really thought i knew everything was a fishing guide (laughs) and you go and i went to work for for cca and i was like okay wow sometimes policy is a little bit different than i thought it was going to be it's not always based on logic (laughs) yeah um and and but when you realize you were wrong and you were anchored in real certitude that you were right is this hugely liberating moment. For some people, it's horrifying. For me, I find myself liberated by it because I go, if if I can change my opinion on that, how many other things can I change my opinion on and yeah. become better? Yeah, And exactly. And that's maybe where we're going in general, be it in science or be it in policy and in conservation in general, is if we can open our eyes to continually getting better, to continually improving yeah. and continually pushing forward, then that's how we actually change things yeah. you know, on that's a
1: whole ecological excellent. excellent point. And well, Pat, you know, we're getting towards the end here. Obviously we we need to do this again. And you know, there's a lot lot more ground we did not not cover. I'm sitting here looking at my notes and go, oh, I want to talk about this and I wanted to talk about that. I mean, so our listeners know, you know, Pat obviously is conservation roles that he plays, but the photography, the authorship on all kind of articles, including your great books and that kind of thing, we need we really need to uh, continue those discussions, but, but we probably should kind of in, get in here for the day. But I, before we do that, I, obviously I want to leave you with a few last words, but I want to say a few things, but, but real quick, before we get there, what's, what's on the horizon for CCA or where do you, what's, where are y'all headed now or what's happening or what are the big issues kind of things? You know, it's going to be
2: habitats is big everywhere. Yeah. And I know we've touched on yeah. that is that that's just, I mean, it's in all different levels of development in our different states, but, um, it's at the same velocity in most, in the sense yeah. that you know the ones that are really just starting their programs, um, there's a lot of energy and excitement, and then the ones that are some of the longest in the tooth of it, um, ones like uh, well, Texas and Louisiana and Florida, Alabama and others, um, they're as excited as ever about it. Yeah, um, I do think science and economics and people's focus on that has increased. Yeah, science probably has been has been more of a focus longer, but the role of economics. Oh yeah.
1: That's, is bigger and yeah. bigger, and institutionally we're right in the middle of that. But yeah, that's that's sort of what I see as well as the way of the the future and really recognizing the economic role yep. all these activities play. And for example, what's the what's the value of these oyster reefs you're creating, or what's mm-hmm. the value of these seagrasses? What do they do for us as humans? Kind of thing. Yeah, and policymakers and, and, they look at that. Oh, they listen. They they speak in economics. They do, and so, so um,
2: that um, wasn't always as acknowledged as probably we would have liked it. And I see that picking up. Um, so on the policy level, um, and then also just you know we we had an influx of anglers through twenty twenty. Um, some of those are stickings, maybe some aren't, but um, mm-hmm. the the desire for the outdoors to be healthy and accessible um, is probably more relevant than it's been in a long time. Yeah, and yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I see
1: that. Every day, Every more day. and more. Yeah. Every day.
2: So I see, yeah. I see that as a key focus is making sure this new wave of anglers become this new wave of conservation.
1: Yeah. Well, good. Well, Pat, I, I want to let you wrap up here with, and give you the last words. I just want to say, you know, thank you for d- doing the show, you know, where the broader community and the Institute here, you know, is deeply appreciative of what you do, dedicating your career and life to marine conservation and, and fishing. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, Proud, you know, call you a friend, and even more proud to call you, you know, a, a great fishing partner. In fact, my best fishing partner in the two, I guess I could say, uh, way too infrequent trips we could <laughs> do. You know, Pat and I solve all the world's problems waiting shallow flats for trow, trout and redfish. True. Unfortunately, it happens way, way too little than I think we we would like. But I hope you know that um, helps you keep your passion strong and your dedication to the resource. And we appreciate everything you do, Pat, and we're happy to have you on the podcast and and all the expertise and advice you give this institute is, is exceptionally valuable to no, us. No, so, uh, the association you,
2: is is you, is 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 a lot. It's more than I could ever ask for in our friendship. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny um, you were referencing the book. That's actually Greg on the book, <laughs> yeah. um, and in so, most pages, most photos are of you or, you, or your hand holding yeah, a fish, or so, you doing doing
1: that. That's right. And,
2: <laughs> and, and and but fishing is too infrequent, and maybe that's even. Um, that's probably something decent to, to end on. So I wrote, I wrote a piece for tide magazine um, sometime back and probably posted it on my website, maybe on my Instagram. Um, But it was inbox zero. Yeah. And it it, it was this sinking (laughs) moment I had and uh, I I remember writing it and sent it to Greg. And, um, and it was, we were on some national holiday day where we were both clearly off and and you and I are are two people who love their jobs and, and probably, admittedly both work too much but we were trading photos not of some big giant slob trout we were releasing or a monster flounder it was that we had done screen captures of our inbox zeros (laughs) oh that's a horrible moment
1: what are we thinking i remember catching myself (laughs) because
2: we've been talking about when we were fishing one day and i was like oh is that what we've become (laughs) this is horrible and so so maybe the 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 final thing to talk about is how important fishing is, yeah. and that it starts and ends with fishing in terms of marine yeah. conservation. It really does. Yeah. And and that um, there's a great Warren Buffett quote is, uh, he's got so many great quotes, but was uh, someone sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree long ago. Yeah, And you really don't plant a tree unless you care about trees and you care about the way that field is. And that's what we're talking about doing. Yeah is if you care about the ocean and the bay and the estuary, and one of the great ways to care about that is through fishing, you want to make sure that you're planting more trees. And that's what we're talking yeah. about doing. Be it yeah. on the science okay. side, the advocacy side, the habitat side, all of those matter.
1: Well, Pat, I couldn't think of a better way to end the podcast. So we appreciate you being here. Let's do it again soon. Yep. My don't, pleasure. don't check your email. Let's go fishing. Yeah, I like that. That's a good <laughs> right. way to end. All right. Well, thanks, Pat.
0: Thanks for listening to the Gulf Stream. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help make a difference in the Gulf by contributing to the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies research and efforts to create healthier coastal and marine ecosystems. Visit heartresearch.org, that's H A R T E research.org, for more information. Please note, the views and opinions expressed by guests of the Gulf Stream do not necessarily reflect the views of the Hart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies or Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. It is our mission to be an honest broker, providing only science-based solutions to Gulf of Mexico problems and other environmental issues. This podcast is intended to provide our guests with a safe and open forum for them to express themselves freely.